0: Last week, I taught the doctrine of the Apostle Peter. When time expired, I had just begun a study of John 6, verses 70 and 71, by way of the doctrine of Judas Iscariot. And I shall read, Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him. Being one of the twelve, Doctrine of Judas Iscariot. Introduction. The story really begins at the home of a farmer leper. The Lord is invited to a dinner party, and and the guest list is a most well. It's very interesting. Simon, a farmer leper. Lazarus, a trusted, resuscitated friend of the Lord Jesus. Mary and Martha, sisters of Lazarus and the twelve original disciples. Let me read Mark's account, beginning in chapter 14, verse 1. We'll read through verse 9. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But during the feast, they said, Or the people may riot. So they were greatly concerned. Now, that was verse 2. But during the feast, they said, Or the people may riot. Now, while he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured the perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Verse 9, I tell you the truth. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. The Apostle John places the event described above as taking place six days before the Passover. We also learn from John that Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, were in attendance at the supper. John also provided the name of the lady who spread the perfume on the Christ. He reveals it to us. It was Mary, a sister of Lazarus. John 12, 1, reading through verse 6. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, yarn, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? This, he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bear what was put therein. Now let's take a look at our Lord at Simon's house, a striking contrast. Point one, whether we use marks Matthew's, Luke's, or John's account, all four sources provide a striking contrast. Let's again review the two contrasting scenes. The chief priests plotting in the palace and Mary breaking her alabaster box in Simon's house. The Holy Spirit could not have grouped the two incidents more admirably than he did. These two brief paragraphs gives us a couple of contrasted pictures and the effect of each is heightened by the contrasting parallel. The bitter hate of the chief priests appear all the more malignant by contrast with Mary's devoted and enthusiastic love for her Savior. Christ as a Divider It is the contrast between the two scenes that suggests what varied feelings different people had toward the Christ. And so it is even today. Simeon, when he took the young child in his arms in the temple, uttered words that must have struck a chill in the heart of Mother Mary. Simeon prophesied that the young child would grow up to be a divider. But then what confusion must have been in young Mary's mind when Anna spoke of her young son's destiny as, quote, he who would bring redemption to Israel. Luke chapter 2, verse 34 through 38, so explains. Now as a divider, not everyone would love him. And our Lord, when he entered upon his ministry, took up Simeon's parable and reaffirmed his prophecy about himself, only in plainer and more emphatic language. Think not, he said, that I came to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. Matthew 10, 34-36 A Prediction Fulfilled Jesus moved some to deepest devotion. He stirred others to well-nigh ungovernable rage. And that division of feeling with which men regarded Christ is all flashed upon us within the limits of these nine verses. Here you have side by side Bitter hate and passionate love. Blind fury and utter devotion. The high priest plotting and Mary anointing. The prediction then fulfilled. Jesus moves some to the deepest devotion and then others to an ungovernable rage. Alright, let's take a look at the, how the plot of Jesus unfurled. Point one, and it was near Passover time. Passover was the feast which reminded the Jews of the great deliverance which God had miraculously provided. And the chief priests and scribes gathered together on the eve of that glad and blessed season. For what? For prayer? For thanksgiving? No, it was for conspiracy to commit homicide. What were the causes of the plot? What stirred this cruel and deadly hate? The religious leaders had been brought up to expect a certain type of Messiah, and their prejudices prevented them from seeing the truth about Jesus' offering. He's an imposter. He eliminated our kiosk where we sold goods in the temple. And he's getting all the attention that we deserve. All right, some of the plotters. In spite of the fact that these men were the religious leaders of their day, many of them were bad men. Dr. Yaikiki, in his book Life of Christ, describes some of the persons who were probably present at this murder council. Caiaphas would preside, and Caiaphas was known amongst the people as the oppressor. Annas, his father-in-law, and those five sons of his who will all, or who all, by the way, occupied the high priestly office in succession one after another, were present. To Annas and his family, for their cruel craftiness, the people had given the nickname "the Vipers," the foes of the just. Perhaps a be- better illustration still is to be found in The Trial of Faithful at Vanity Fair, as John Bunyan tells it in his book, Pilgrim Progress. You might r- remember the list of the jury or jurymen. Mr. Blind Man, Mr. No Good, Mr. Malice, Mr. Lovelust, Mr. Live Loose, Mr. Hetty, Mr. High Mind. Mr. Enmity, Enmity, Mr. Liar, Mr. Cruelty, Mr. Hate-Light, and Mr. Implacable. And in Christ, we have Faithfuls, Captain, and Lord. And in these Chief Priests and Scribes, we have the High Mind and Heady, and Loveless, and Live Loose, and Malice, and No Good of Bunyan's Day. The types are around today. All right, self-condemned. But notice that in hating Christ and seeking to kill him, these people pronounce their own condemnation. This is the judgment that the light is coming to the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. In Jesus, absolute goodness had come. For as Simeon said, Christ came that thoughts out of many hearts may be revealed. All right, let's look at the master's friends. Now turn to the other and contrasted picture. If Christ repels some, he attracted others. If he fills some with cruel and malignant hate, he inspired others with uttermost and enthusiastic love. In Jerusalem, the chief priests and scribes were plotting to kill him. And there were at Bethany lowly hearts who counted no honor too high to pay him. There were some some to whom Christ was altogether lovely, and of course there were those plotting. So there were some who kept the warmest place in their hearts for him. There were some who reckoned their homes most blessed when Christ entered as their honored guest. And first and chief of these who loved and honored Christ and were ready to give their best to Christ was the little household at Bethany. Brothers and sisters, they were dear friends. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so while the chief priests and scribes plot Christ's death in Jerusalem, kindly loving hearts make a great feast for him in Bethany. So let's take a look at Simon and his feast. Behind this feast and Mary's sacrificial deed, there were more than ordinary love. There was more than ordinary love. There was love intensified by gratitude for supreme mercies given. The feast was spread in the house of Simon the leper. Now various ingenious guesses have been made, As to the relationship between Simon and Lazarus and his sisters. Some commentators suggest that he may have been given Martha's, or may have been Martha's husband. Oh, but all such guesses are futile. Uh, The scriptures give us no indication of what the relationship was, or indeed that any relationship at all existed. So I guess we had better be satisfied with what is revealed in Scripture. Simon had been a leper, had had been. I say, for of course, a feast at his house would have been impossible had he still been a leper. He had once suffered from that most loathsome of all diseases and had been cured of it. We are not told in so many words, but I will hazard the guess, Simon was one of the many lepers whom Jesus healed, you remember, and only one returned to thank him. And this feast of his was a feast inspired by gratitude by the healer himself. All right, a work of love and gratitude. Behind Mary's sacrificial offering, again, there lay the memory of a great and unspeakable mercy. If you want to understand this lavish and splendid deed, you must read once more that 11th chapter of John's Gospel which tells how Lazarus sickened and died and how at the call of the sisters, Jesus came back out of Perea where he had gone to seek shelter and not only sympathized with the sisters but restored Lazarus to them alive and well. And even after he had been in the grave four days, Ever since that never-to-be-forgotten day, this was the question the one sister had put to the other. What shall we render unto the Lord for all of His benefits toward us? Nothing was too great or good for this mighty friend who had done such great things for them. And this paragraph tells us their passionate gratitude sought to express itself. Mary's Offering The busy, energetic Martha served at this great feast but Mary did a far more startling and amazing thing because while the feast was in progress she stole up to the couch upon which the master lay and with an alabaster cruse of ointment of spikenard very costly in her hand and broke it over the Lord's head and feet. That's how John described the situation. A word or two must be said to make clear the sacrificial character of this deed. Anointing the head with oil was a common practice, but this was no ordinary anointing oil. The cost of the ordinary ointing, anointing oil would not have been more than the widow's pipe. This was spikenard oil, ointment the most costly of all the fragrant oils of this world. Except in drops, it was only used by kings and the richest classes. Mary had bought an alabaster cruise of this ointment, and she must trade for it a great deal, probably 300 or so denarii or shillings, and it wasn't a drop or two. She broke the cruise. She emptied its whole content. Nothing of it was reserved for commoner use. This all was purchased only for the royal head and sacred feet of the King of Kings. All this must be borne in mind if we are to appreciate the full significance of Mary's act, the worship implied and the sacrifice involved. All right, the Master's Tribute. The deed stirred some of those sitting at the feast to indignant remonstrance. Quote, to what purpose has this waste of ointment been made, they said. But it stirred Jesus to thanksgiving and praise. Let her alone, you'll recall, he said. She hath wrought a good work, or rather a beautiful deed on me. A beautiful deed indeed. Verily I say unto you, he added, Whatever the gospel shall be preached, What this woman did shall be spoken of as a memorial of her praise the worthiest of gifts what a eulogy with the widow of the two mites mary of bethany received the noblest praise ever bestowed by christ on man or woman it is as if he held her out to the notice of the wide world and said this is what i want from you all right what about the love behind the offering what was it in mary's act that drew this eulogy Not the fact that the ointment was costly, but the lavish, enthusiastic, sacrificial love of which that costly ointment spoke. What a wanton waste, though, said Judas. Yes, but then real love is always lavish and maybe at times a little wasteful. Christ presents choices. The high priest plotting murder, Merry, lavishing love. These are representations of the two classes into which Jesus divides mankind. Some people hate Him, some love Him. Some reject Him and some worship Him. And just some play like they do love Him. Now let's see what we can learn of the plot to kill Jesus. Mark 14, verses 10 and 11 New International Version, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. (laughs) So so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Kenneth Weiss has written of these two verses, and I'll quote, The definite article appears before the word one, Judas, the one of the twelve who betrayed the Lord. He went to the chief priests, realizing that they were the individuals chiefly concerned. The word betray is paradidomai, paradidomai, to hand over or alongside. Our sell him down the river. They were glad. The verb is kairo, not agliao. The first word is more expressive of the inward feeling of joy, the second of its audible or visible expression. Let's see what the Bible has to say about old Judas Iscariot. A good place to start is with John's description of his betrayal of the Lord Jesus. Let's begin in John chapter 13, verse 18, and we shall read all the way through verse 30. So here we go. I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I tell you the truth. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who has sent me. After he has said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. Now verse 22 and we're going to read all the way again as I noted, verse 30. His disciples, his disciples, disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. John 13 verse 23. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining next to him. Simon Peter mentioned to his disciples and said, uh, he actually spoke to this disciple, the one Jesus loved, which we think was John. Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As Simon, as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Just as soon. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus said to him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Jesus had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. Now in the list of the twelve disciples, Judas Iscariot is designated by the stigma, he who betrayed him and who became a traitor. Let's take a look at several of those verses. Matthew ten four Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Mark three nineteen and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Luke six sixteen, Jesus, excuse me, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. At the same time he is also called one of the twelve in Mark fourteen ten and verse twenty. And he is designated one of the disciples who would later betray him in John 6, verse 71, as one of his disciples, Jesus Iscariot, who was later to betray him. And then we also have that in John 12, verse 4, or similar. All right, Mark 14, 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to him. Uh, and I'll read that verse 20 in Mark. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. And then in John 6, 71, as we've seen, he Judas, Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. Then in chapter 12, verse 4 in the book of John, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who would later to betray him, objected. So Judas was called a devil in John six seventy. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? The word devil is a translation from diabolos, meaning slanderer, traitor, or informer. Now there is no mention of Judas Iscariot prior to his selection by Christ. Judas served as treasurer for the disciples. John 12, 4-6 And I'll read. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. And then in John 12, 5 Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Verse 6 he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, as keeper of the money bag. He used to help himself to what was put into it. As we have seen in John twelve six to above, Judas also, often excuse me, embezzled funds from time to time, and was characterized as a thief in Scripture. His true character with his. Avarice and covetousness revealed itself at the anointing of Jesus in Bethany. Judas pretended along with the other disciples that his concern had to do with the waste and that the expensive perfume should have been sold and the proceeds given to the poor. Let me give you the American Standard Version of John 12, beginning in verse 1, reading through verse 6. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at meat with him. Mary, therefore, took a pound of ointment of pure nard, very precious, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, that should betray him said why was not this ointment sold for three hundred shillings and given to the poor now this he said not because he cared for the poor but because he was a thief and having the bag took away what was put therein often he so stole from the bag Judas expected Christ to establish an earthly kingdom in in which he would have an important position until that happened, he was happy to enrich himself from the common funds. It troubled him to hear the Lord describe his kingdom as a spiritual kingdom. He looked forward to the earthly kingdom that the Old Testament seemed to promise, John, and in fact did. John six sixty three and 64. The spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of the disciples did not believe and who would betray him. The refusal of Christ to establish an earthly kingdom angered Judas, as did Christ's periodic reference to his death. Of course, we know from our study that the reason he didn't establish his earthly kingdom was because he had no acceptance from Israel. All right, Whitcliffe in his Bible... Encyclopedia writes, The final incident which drove Judas to betray Jesus was the expensive anointing at Bethany coupled with Christ's clear declarations. She did it for my burial. John twelve seven and 8. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended, intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you but you will not always have me. I think that needs to be announced time and time again to the liberals of this world, the progressive. Though Christ chose Judas, knowing he would betray him, still he showed him constant compassion, gave him him a complete revelation of himself and many warnings. He held nothing back, not even from the one who would betray him. In fact, he humbly washed Judas' feet along with the other disciples and then said, you're all clean, but not all. And we've studied that in John chapter 13, verse 10 and elsewhere. All right. Matthew in his gospel provides a closing statement of the life and demise of the world's most infamous traitor. Matthew chapter 26, verse 14, reading through verse 50, at least in part. Then one of the disciples called Judas Iscariot went unto the chief priests and said unto them, what, shall we, what will ye give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Then dropping down to verse 25, Then Judas, which had betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou hast said. And then dropping down to verse 47, And while he yet spake low, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with them a great multitude, with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he. Hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master. And kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Now Matthew 27, 3, 4, and 5. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. I have betrayed the Lord, of course. And they said, what is that to us? And he cast down, that is, Judas cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Let me give you a few conclusion points. That is to say, in conclusion... These are important because a lot of people ask these questions and have received answers in this particular teaching. So how do we answer the several questions about Judas Iscariot? Here goes. Was he a believer? Sadly, I must say no, he was not. Was he demon-possessed? Sadly, I must answer yes. Was he a disciple? Yes. And was he treated fairly as such? Again, the answer is yes. Was he justified in his actions only in the minds of misguided liberals? Where is he today? In the torment side of Sheol awaiting judgment at the great white throne. Like all unbelievers appearing before the great white throne, Judas will bring instead of his faith in Christ, Judas will bring a list of all the good he had done in his life. Christ the Judge, however, will adjudicate the matter, and before all the world, Judas' human good will be declared as filthy rags, and he will be cast into a place of everlasting punishment. Now let's see what we can learn from John 7, verses 2-9. through Now the feast, the Jewish feast of tabernacles was at hand, and his brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence, and go into Judea, that the disciples also may see the works that thou doest, for there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, if thou do these things, show thyself to the world; for, for neither did his brethren believe in him. Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready the world cannot hate you but hate it me because i testify of it that the works the works thereof are evil go ye up into this feast i go not yet up into this feast for my time is not fully come when he had said these words he abode still in galilee and i see the clock on the wall tells us it's time to stop so uh, Let's uh, see what we can do here with an invitation. An an invitation to anyone who has not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and, and that person is in need right now of salvation faith. So with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I would ask that you would pray that the Word of God would have full effect. Because this message is going out to many people, many of whom, perhaps, have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And as such, they have need to do that right now. As the scripture says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's rather simple. Faith alone in Christ alone. You don't have to jump through any psychological hoops. You don't have to uh, tell God, I'm not going to do it anymore. You don't have to tell God you feel sorry for your sins. No, you just simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And as the jailer said, What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And it's all by grace. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a worse, lest any man should boast. So I'll pause for just a moment and then provide us with a benediction. But uh, take a moment to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Simply tell God the Father, I'm believing on God the Son. And on the promise of the Word, you will be saved. Father, thank You for the opportunity to come together and to study Your Word. Now, I certainly would ask that God the Holy Spirit would take that which I have presented, make it real, in order that we might become more like our Lord and Savior, even Jesus the Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen.